chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, is where we'll be last week, or actually two weeks ago. We started this passage of Romans. It is one of the key passages of the book of Romans. These six verses explain the fundamental principles of salvation for all of mankind and express the doctrine of the justification by faith, which is the heart of the letter of Romans. In these verses, we learn that on the basis of the cross, God freely declares sinners to be righteous through their faith in Jesus Christ. And this passage describes God's provision of salvation from three points of view. Last time, uh, two weeks ago, last week we had a missionary, but two weeks ago, whenever we, we started into this passage, we got the first point of view covered. And the first point of view that Paul addresses is the point of view of a courtroom. In the terms of a courtroom, we are justified. That means that we are declared to be righteous. The judge said we're righteous. It doesn't matter anymore whether we did it or not. It doesn't matter anymore whether we were guilty or not. The judge has wrapped his gavel and said you're innocent. That's justification. Amen. The blood of Jesus Christ covered our sins. We were justified. We were declared to be righteous. The next uh, metaphor that Paul uses in this passage is the terms, uh, terminology of... <coughs> sorry, my lungs are not all there this morning either. The terminology of a slave market. And in, in, in the terms of a slave market, he says that we have been redeemed or bought with a price. Amen. We have been paid for our deliverance was purchased and finally in terms of the temple he he uses a word that is unfamiliar to us the word propitiation which we'll cover this morning and that propitiation means uh, a sacrifice or a place of atonement and so these three metaphors really describe the inner workings of salvation how we're saved what God has done to deliver us and that's where we're we're at, we stopped last week in the middle of verse 24, or, or two weeks ago, Sabrina re received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the evidence of speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gave the utterance. Amen. Last, or two weeks ago on Sunday morning after we got done pre-teaching on justification, being justified. This week we'll pick up in the middle of verse 24. Let's read the whole passage beginning at verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So we got as far as being justified freely by his grace last time we'll pick up with the latter half of that verse through the redemption that is in christ jesus verse 24 that's where we stopped 
and this is the reason I stopped there is because one I spent a whole lot longer on justified than I intended to and two this was a shift where he changes metaphors Paul now changes metaphors in verse 24 the latter half he describes our salvation in the terms of a slave market redemption is the concept of being set free by the payment of a ransom price it's built upon the application of a common legal transaction of biblical times when a man became a debtor when he owed a debt that he could not pay there was a legal system in place that allowed him to work off his debt as a slave to the person to whom he owed the debt it's not uncommon as a matter of fact it's not even unfamiliar in american history uh whenever if you if you'll remember back to your eighth grade american history class uh, when they told you about things called indentured servants an indentured servant would pledge a certain number of years of service to pay for their passage to the new world to america so they they couldn't afford to buy a ticket on a boat to get here but they'd get a sponsor here a, a plantation owner or somebody that would pay their way for them to come and in exchange they would work for them they would be their servant their slave for x amount of years and at the end of the term they're set free that's what we're talking about here when a man owed a debt that he could not pay he could pay that debt by working it off he made himself a slave to the person in whom he was indebted now in order for that transaction to be fulfilled in order for that process to be completed the the man had an obligation either to work off the debt completely or to pay it off himself before it was finished the only other way to terminate that agreement was for a redemption price to be paid somebody had to pay his debt but the law only allowed for that redemption price to be paid by a kinsman in other words if i owed the debt and i put myself into service to uh, brother anderson because i owed him the debt brother houston may love me dearly but he can't buy me out of slavery because he's not my kinsman well his wife is my wife well, let's not even get into all that it doesn't matter he couldn't purchase my freedom he isn't my direct blood relative but if my brother wanted to pay me out he could pay me out because he's my kinsman he can be my redeemer nobody else is qualified to be my redeemer but he could be my redeemer there was a special allowance in the law that a kinsman could pay the debt that he could a blood relative could come in and become the redeemer of an individual that was under the the slavery of debt now understand this there was no other kind of redeemer except the kinsman redeemer the only person qualified to redeem anybody out of debt was the kinsman he was the only one that could go in and make that payment and satisfy the law that's why the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient to remit for sin in the old testament 
That's why the blood of an animal was never sufficient to take away sin. That's why the millions of gallons of blood that was shed by millions of sacrificial animals would never set free humanity from the bondage of sin. That price could only be paid by a kinsman. It had to be somebody that was related. That's why John starts his gospel the way he did. He says in, in, in John 1 and 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He establishes the validity of my kinsman. He says later, And that Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same message that Paul broadcast in 1 Timothy 3 and 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. In the incarnation, God became my kinsman. In the incarnation, God became a man. The significance of God becoming a man is that that enabled him to pay the price that I owed for sin. You see, I was sold under the debt of sin. Amen. I owed a debt I could not pay. I'm not able to pay for my own sin. I'm not able to redeem myself out of sin. And nobody else and nothing else can redeem me out of sin. But God becomes my kinsman. Amen. Because I owe a debt that I cannot pay. And the only way he can pay it is to be my kinsman. He's, he's got to become a man just like me. He's got to put on flesh and blood just like me. I'm in bondage to sin. Amen. I owe a debt I can't pay. And if he's going to redeem me, he's got to become my kinsman. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8 and 34 that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin because sin is the slave master that each of us is bound to from birth. We carry the legacy of Adam. We carry the legacy of sin. And from, from the very first breath that we draw, we're in bondage to sin. Every one of us was bound to that from birth. We, we don't have the resources to purchase our own freedom. We don't have the ability to set ourselves free. We can't live good enough to be delivered from sin. It was a debt that we could never overcome. Thank God. For the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed at the cross on Calvary's hill. He purchased our salvation. He purchased our freedom. When you talk about redemption, that's what you're talking about. The cross was about more than just covering up sin. The cross was about more than just, just putting away sin. The cross was about paying the price that my sin demanded. Jesus was a man, just like you, just like me. God took upon himself flesh and blood with one vital exception. He wasn't born under the bondage of sin. He wasn't born in death to sin. He didn't know sin anything. And because he was without sin, even though he was tempted in every point, just like we are, he remained sinless. And because he was without sin, because he didn't have any sin, then he had within himself the resources to pay for my sin. The just, the scripture says, for the unjust. You see, no other person could do it 
because there's no other just person. We're all unjust. We all fall short. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us has the ability to redeem anybody, much less ourselves. The blood of bulls and goats can't do it. The blood of lambs can't do it because they're not my kinsmen. But Jesus Christ, when God made himself flesh, he, he provided that perfect lamb, that perfect sacrifice that knew no sin. So when he went to the cross, he was able to die for my sin, for your sins, for the sins of the entire world. He bought our freedom as our kinsman. He redeemed us. And he didn't die just uh, just, just die instead of me or just die in my place. He died for me. His death was the, the satisfaction of, of God's wrath for my sin the just for the unjust. He paid my price. He stood in my place. So Paul can say in the latter half of this verse then that we are redeemed in Christ Jesus. That's how we're redeemed. There's no other source of redemption. There's no other way to be redeemed. There's nobody else that can pay that price. There's nothing else that can satisfy that debt. We are redeemed in Christ Jesus. Because only a kinsman can redeem me. Of all of my kinsmen, there's only one who is without sin. And he is Jesus Christ. And only he can be my redeemer. Verse 25 says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So now we move to the language of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And this is the final metaphor of this passage. And it revolves around a word that is very unfamiliar to us. The word is propitiation. So we're going to start by defining that. The Greek Old Testament that Paul studied from, the version of the Bible that Paul read and quotes from when he writes is the Greek Old Testament. And that Greek Old Testament used the same word for propitiation that it did to translate the Hebrew word for the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat was the lid that was on the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the blood was applied. Once a year, the priest went beyond the veil and he sprinkled blood on that mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. That blood that, that I just now detailed very, very forcefully didn't have the ability to wash away sin. It didn't have the ability to take away sin. It had the ability to atone for sin. That means it covered it. It pushed it ahead. There are a lot of ways to describe what propitiation means. It's something that allows God to act mercifully or forgivingly. It is a sacrifice of atonement, something that turns aside God's wrath and, and, and covers sin. It is an appeasement of divine wrath or a satisfaction of divine justice. But for our purposes, the simplest way to define propitiation is to relate it to the mercy seat. 
it is a place of atonement. It's a place where sins are covered. Jesus Christ is our means of receiving God's forgiveness and mercy. He is our mercy seat. He is our place of atonement. Since God is holy and just, God can't overlook sin. He can't have fellowship with sinful nature. God's nature requires that man's sin result in separation from him. The wages of sin is death because eternal separation from God is the ultimate price of sin. And so the principle of divine judgment judgment requires death for sin. God's love and mercy, however, wanted to restore man to fellowship with God. And God's grace provided for that purpose a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Through the death of the sinless man, Jesus Christ, we were able to be entered back into fellowship with God. His death atoned for our sins. He took our place. He suffered the penalty for our sin in our stead. If we believe then in Jesus Christ and what he did for us, then his work becomes effective in our lives. His death met the requirement of God's justice. It enables God to pardon our sins. It enables God to declare us, just like we talked about justification, to declare us to be righteous without violating his holy nature, without violating his word, without the wages of sin is death. That's the word of God. You understand the word of God doesn't change. God doesn't violate his own law. So in order for there to be redemption, in order for there to be justification, in order for there to be uh, salvation for you and me, there had to be a place where death was paid. There had to be a place where the wages of sin resulted in death. That place is the cross. Jesus Christ becomes our mercy seat. Jesus Christ becomes that place where the blood is applied. So the death of Jesus is an appeasement or a turning away of divine wrath. God's wrath for sin. God's anger at sin. God's sense of justification that he he pours out his wrath against sin was fully satisfied at the cross. That's why the cross is such a horrible thing. That's why it, it wasn't just a death, it was a torture. Amen. They beat him. They mocked him. They cursed him. They spit upon him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They whipped him until his ribs were bare. They hung him on a cross. And then he hung there asphyxiated in between heaven and earth. And then to add insult to injury, they they shoved a spear into his side. It wasn't a pretty death. It wasn't a pleasant death. It was the wrath of God for sin. It was the price of sin. Amen. The the cross is there so that the price can be paid, so that God's wrath can be satisfied. The cross doesn't make God love us. The cross is there because God loved us. The cross is there because he loved us so much that he bore the weight of our judgment for sin. 
And so at the cross, it reveals both God's hatred of sin, the wrath that God has for sin. The horror of the cross shows us how much God despises sin. But it also shows us how much God loves us. It shows God's mercy. It shows God's grace. It shows God's love for sinful man. It was not an appeasement offering made by man. It was not a lamb that was taken to an altar that a man brought to satisfy God. See, the cross is reminiscent of the ram that was caught in the bush for Abraham. God provided himself a sacrifice. It wasn't a sacrifice that any man put forward. God made himself a sacrifice. God publicly presented the man Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of atonement for sin. This wasn't something the system or a plan that, that man came up with to set himself free from sin. This is something that God did that only God could do. Whom God, the scripture says, hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. God brought it about. God presented this sacrifice that it be a propitiation a place of mercy through faith in his blood now that phrase Christ is our propitiation through faith in his blood or by his blood through faith one thing to note about that phrase in, in the Greek is that through faith and in his blood are two independent clauses. They're not one clause as they appear in the English translation. In other words, the propitiation is effective through two things. Through blood and faith. It takes both. The propitiation itself came by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we apply that propitiation to our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. The basis of justification then is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our lives through faith. Now, blood itself is an, is an important metaphor. We're talking about metaphors, and we've talked about justification. We've talked about redemption. We've talked about propitiation. But blood is another very strong metaphor throughout Scripture. It is essential to life. It supplies the life-sustaining nutrients and oxygen that your body needs to be able to function. Leviticus chapter 17 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. That's scripture. Because of this, the shedding of blood represents life given up in death. Amen. That's what the, when the Bible references blood, what it's saying is uh, blood is about that transaction that takes place where life is surrendered to death. The blood of Jesus Christ represents the sinless life that he lived on earth and voluntarily gave up at the cross. When you talk about the blood of Jesus, you're talking about the death of Jesus. Amen. When you talk about the blood of Jesus, you're talking about that transaction that took place where his blood was shed, his life was surrendered. The two are synonymous. To declare, the scripture says, the, the whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, 
to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The propitiatory death of Christ served to manifest God's righteousness in two ways. First, it shows that God was acting justly when he temporarily overlooked the sins that were committed in the past. What we're doing here now, what, what Paul is doing is he's tying the New Testament to the Old Testament. He, he's tying the cross all the way back to the patriarchs. He's taken the cross all the way back through the pages of the Old Testament. The reference here is to sins before the cross, sins in the past. In the Old Testament, God forgave sin and he justified men and he treated them as righteous even though no penalty had been paid for sin. Remember, I've already stated this morning, the blood of bulls and goats. The book of Hebrews tells us very plainly the blood of bulls and goats couldn't remit for sins. But God declared men to be righteous even though that price had not fully been paid. In his patience, he seemingly ignored their sin. Now that creates a theological problem, and that's what Paul's about to deal with. It is just as wrong to justify the wicked as it is to condemn the innocent or the just. And so... It's just as wrong to declare those who are not righteous to be righteous without any means of accomplishing that. The blood, the price has not been paid as it would be to declare the righteous to be unrighteous. And since it's unjust to ignore wrong, the question then is how could God overlook sin? How could God all those ages pass with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the Old Testament, how could God overlook their sin and still be just? And what Paul is telling us is that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross justified God in his forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. That is, it it vindicated God's Justice. It showed or declared that God was righteous. It demonstrated that God had not ignored sin. It was not, God was not indifferent to sin. God didn't just wink at it in their ignorance, but he required a penalty to be paid. And that penalty was paid at the cross. You see, God doesn't live in time like we do. God doesn't inhabit days and weeks and months. God lives in eternity. It's, it's beyond our grasp. It's beyond our understanding. We, we know what happened yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day, but we couldn't tell you what's going to happen the next hour. We can't see. The weatherman can't even see. Has no idea what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes. But God inhabits eternity. I use the example of a dollhouse. We, we, we live in a world where if we, we're in a room like this room, we can see what's in this room. 
but we can't none of us knows what's going on in the nursery we can't see the nursery we inhabit days we inhabit minutes we inhabit seconds and we can't see beyond them but God sees time the same way you how many ever seen a little dollhouse you pull the roof off and you can look and you see all the rooms at one time you can see what's going on in the kitchen, the living room, and the nursery all at the same time. That's the way God sees time. His, his view of time extend, extends from eternity past to eternity future. He was and is and forever will be. He sees everything. He knows everything. And so in, in his view of time, he knows the future with certainty. He knows what will happen. He knows that the cross is going to be there. And so he can treat things that do not yet exist as though they already existed. He can treat things that have not yet happened as though they had already happened. The Bible says he declares those things which are not as though they were. God's not a man. He can't lie. If he declares that which is not as though it were, it's because he knows it's going to be. And so God forgave sin in the Old Testament and justified men in the Old Testament in anticipation of the cross. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed David. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed Abraham. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed uh, Jacob and Noah and Moses. It was the blood of Jesus, not the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that made them righteous. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all of humanity. Now, God can act upon that future event because he knew it was going to be. Peter tells us that he predestined it before the foundations of the world. God knew before he ever started making the planet that there was going to be a cross. God knew before he ever reached down in the dust of the earth and made the very first man and breathed life into him that there was going to be a cross. And so he, so he showed mercy in anticipation of the cross. He, he showed mercy as a demonstration of his righteousness that was going to be declared at Calvary. Now, understand this. Nobody in the Old Testament, nobody in ages past, could ever have been saved without the cross. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the blood of animals, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, could not take away the sins of humanity. The Old Testament system of sacrifice did not actually forgive or remit sins. Instead, it atoned for sins. And I touched on that word a minute ago, and I'm going to go back to it. It temporarily atoned for sin. That means that God passed over their sins, looking ahead to the day when the blood of Jesus would finally and fully remit their sins. The Hebrew word for atonement literally means a covering. What happened in the Old Testament with the blood of bulls and goats and lambs is that sins were covered. They were hidden from God's sight, if you will. They were covered by blood where they waited 
to be dealt with permanently at the cross. So by obeying the system of sacrifice, the Hebrew brought a lamb and offered it as a sacrifice for his sins. And that blood of that lamb covers the sin, atones the sin, and it waits for the cross to fully remit the sin. Now here's the key. This is the key to understanding both what happened in the Old Testament and what is happening in the New Testament. The Old Testament saints expressed their faith in God by obeying His command. They demonstrated their faith in God by offering sacrifices for their sins. Now, those sacrifices didn't save them. Their obedience to their faith saved them. They were saved by faith and obedience. Those sacrifices atoned their sins, pushed them ahead, rolled them forward to the cross. But it was Christ's death. It was Jesus Christ on the cross that actually remitted their sins. It actually redeemed them from sin. It was His work that made redemption effective in their lives. And the way that they claim that, the way that you're saved in the Old Testament, the way that you're saved under the law is by obedient Obedience was the key. Obedience is still the key. That's what we're going to see as, as Romans unfolds. Watch this. If in the Old Testament they had not obeyed, if they had the sacrificial system in place, but they choose not to sacrifice a lamb, they're not saved. It hinges on their obedience, if they had not offered a sacrifice of atonement, if they had not made a temporary covering for their sins, then the atoning work of Jesus Christ could not have been applied to their sins. It mattered that they obeyed because faith and obedience work hand in hand in atonement, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you can't separate obedience from faith. It's not enough to say, well, I believe that the blood of a lamb will atone for my sins. If you don't get a lamb and lay it on an altar and sacrifice that thing, you don't really believe it. Amen? It's not enough just to say, well, I believe the blood of Jesus Christ covers my sins. If you believe it, you're going to obey the word of God. You're going to repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of the sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's scripture. Faith always results in obedience. Verse 26 says, To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So the first purpose of the death of Jesus then was to justify God in times past. It was to justify God's righteousness in the Old Testament. It was to demonstrate that God was righteous in 
forgiving sin under the old sacrificial system. It, it shows that God was righteous in his dealings with sin before the cross. It also shows now we, we move to the present to declare, I say, at this time, now, it shows that God is righteous and forgiven sin right now. On the same basis, God does not forget about sin. God doesn't just pardon sin. God doesn't just wink at sin. It's paid for in full at the cross. So the, the second purpose of the death of Jesus is to justify a man, to declare the believer righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. It enables God to be the justifier of anyone who believes in Jesus. It enables God to forgive anybody who and who actualizes what happened at the cross in their life, who, who, who goes to the cross in faith and brings into their life that principle, amen, of death and burial and resurrection, who relates themselves to the cross of Calvary. It identifies or it enables God's righteous justification of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So the death of Jesus on the cross is an act of redemption. It's a place of propitiation. It's a mercy seat. And what it does is provides a way for man to be saved, for God to be righteous, and for man to be righteous. That's what happened at the cross. And what we're going to discover as the letter unfolds is that the link between faith and obedience is just as strong and just as crucial today as it was in the Old Testament. Genuine belief results in actual obedience every time. Would you stand with me? This Sunday and last Sunday both, we've seen through the eyes of Scripture the wonder of the cross and the rich treasure of salvation. Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins and for mine at the cross. And today, the only thing that any of us has to do to be set free from sin is to have faith in what Jesus Christ has already done to set you free from sin. It was by his death, his burial, and his resurrection that you were delivered from sin. It takes all three. Paul taught that if, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. It's not enough just to have the death and the burial. There has to be a resurrection. It tells me that it's very critical that having begun a process of salvation, that you see it through to the end, that you repent of your sins, that you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and that you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, just like the Bible says. It was by his death, burial, and resurrection that we are redeemed. And today, every one of us has that ability to experience the death, burial, and resurrection. We die to sin at repentance. We're buried with him in the waters of baptism. And the scripture says that same spirit which resurrected him from the dead is that spirit that inhabits our life.
and we're filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Salvation today is based on faith and obedience. The question always was, what will you do with the commandment that was given? In the Old Testament, it was a commandment to select the lamb, the very best that you had, and bring that lamb to the priest and offer it as a sacrifice for your sins. Today, God doesn't want you to go home and pick out your best puppy dog. Use puppy dogs because we don't have lambs. He doesn't want you to go home and pick out the best thing that you have. He wants you. He wants your life. He wants the best of who you are. You bring your life to an altar. You repent of your sins. You're baptized in His name. And you live for Him. That's what He wants for you. This morning, every one of us would do well to consider what a wonderful salvation we receive. What amazing grace God has shown us and ask ourselves are we living up to do we live worthy of do we walk worthy of the price that was paid for me am I living a life that reflects the precious price that God paid for my sins he redeemed me he loved me when I was unlovable he reached for me when I was unreachable. He had mercy on me when I didn't deserve mercy. He showed me grace whenever I had no right to expect it. And the least that I can do is live my life day after day, showing forth the praises, the glory, the majesty of Him who called me out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For just a moment this morning, can I ask you to find a place of prayer? we take a moment and just consider and ask the Lord, Lord, could you help me? I want to be everything you call me to be. I want my life, Lord, to reflect your goodness and your mercy. I want my life, Lord, I want to live a life that is worthy of the sacrifice that you paid for my sins. I wonder for a few moments, church, if we could gather in. It's, it's Sunday morning. I haven't been too awful long. Amen. And I wonder if we could take just a few moments on a Sunday morning Let's pledge ourselves again to living a life. Living a life that shows forth His goodness.